I'm Noel Holzman, and this is Open Concept from Yahoo Finance. So, how do you read your books? Are you a paperback purist, an ebook fanatic? Maybe you listen to your stories. Well, for Michael Tamblin, digital reading definitely comes first. He's the CEO of Rakuten and Kobo. Kobo is a multinational e-reading company based in Toronto. It's been in a battle from its start, with the biggest competition, of course, coming from Amazon's Kindle. But Kobo just took a big step forward. It announced an exclusive partnership with Walmart. Long before Michael was signing major deals with corporate giants, he was just a book lover in small-town Ontario. He actually started his first business while working at an independent bookstore in Guelph. Today I talked to Michael about Kobo's beginnings, how different countries think about book reading, and why he sometimes still prefers paperbacks. This is Open Concept from Yahoo Finance. We're talking to the entrepreneurs and innovators who are making things happen in Canadian business. So Michael Tamblin might be running a multinational company now, but his background is not what you'd expect. Classical composition. You have a degree. You have a degree in <laughs> classical composition from Wilfrid Laurier. I do. Yes. And, and why? Why classical composition? I um I come from a musical family. My um you know, everyone going back to my grandparents plays instruments. Uh, my grandfather uh, rescued his family farm in the Depression by playing trumpet and dance bands. So it's always been a thing in our family. I was uh, the first one to. Uh, actually do a degree in it. And uh, it turns out, having finished that degree, it's really hard to make a living as a uh, as a composer of classical music, which then landed me in uh, in the early days of the internet and e-commerce and then the whole you know, sordid tale that goes on from there. But it all started with a, a degree in classical music. Have you drawn on that? Like, does that continue to inform what you do on a regular basis? Oh, totally. When I break it down aside from the putting notes on paper yeah. so much of the the work of being a composer is bringing people together unifying them around a vision getting them excited about something that may only at you know at this point be an idea or a bit of an idea and get them willing to bring all of their lifetime of training and preparation towards the realization of that and so it was surprisingly easy to go from writing music and bringing together ensembles and performers to putting together business plans and bringing together software developers and, and marketers um, because the conversations are the same. It's why should I do this and why should I spend my time on it and why is it going to be exciting? I'm a great advertisement for parents who are worried about their children taking liberal arts degrees. Just send them my way. I'll tell them it's going to be fine. And now you run... Uh, one of the world's biggest uh, publishing uh, ebook companies. Um, <laughs> the were you? Did you grow up a reader? It, it, yes, I was. I always loved bookstores. I always loved uh, having books around me. The the first job that I ever tried to get as I think I went to the bookstore in my local small town, which is Fergus, Ontario. And asked the person who was running it if I could uh, if I could work there. I think I may have been eleven or twelve. Didn't really know what a job was, but already knew I I loved being around books and literature. And what that's turned into is a number of roles and companies that have always ended up at this intersection between technology and culture. 
Michael was working at a bookstore in Ontario when he started his first business back in the 90s. It was called Bookshelf.ca, and back in the early internet days, it was a way to sell books online. Part of it was was just the raw challenge of it, was um, being in a really good bookstore and growing up in a small town that didn't have a really good bookstore made me realize there are a lot of people out there that can't get access to really good books. And more than that, can't get access to a really good bookselling experience. So unless you were living in big cities, unless you were in a place where you could you know, walk down Queen Street and hit three bookstores in a row, uh, you didn't get any of that. You got the stuff that you could get from a, you know, from a grocery store. Uh, Amazon was just out of the garage in the U.S., and I was working in an independent bookstore in Guelph, Ontario, and uh, talked to the owner into uh, taking it online with uh, with a group of friends. So we were all trying to figure out really from first principles, how do you sell things online? Because of course, none of this had ever really been done before. There, you know, it's not like you call up the three or four vendors and say, build me an e-commerce site. We had to write shopping baskets from scratch. We had to build search engines from scratch. It was, uh, it was all brand new in, you know, 1996, 1997, uh, and which was a fantastic learning opportunity, uh, a great show of bravery on the part of the store owners who let us do it. It was early internet days to the point where, when we started, our uh, our first funders were uh, were Bell Simpatico because they were they were selling um, internet to Canadians, and they needed somewhere to send them. Like there was literally nowhere that you could buy something online in Canada when we were doing this in you know kind of you know, 1997 or so. So some of it was seeing that wave beginning to form in the U.S. as e-commerce was coming together there. And then some of it was tapping into this um, this culture that Canada has around how do we bridge distance in this very thinly populated country, you know, the, whether, you know, going all the way back to like Eaton's catalogs and, you know, people ordering whole buildings from, you know, from, uh, uh, from catalogs that they get in the mail. There was this sense that you could make all books available to all people, whether you were in a small town or in a big city. And that kind of propelled it. And, um, and that led to us getting backed by Bell. That then led to us being acquired by Indigo and forming the core of Indigo.ca. That was in 1998. By 2009, Michael was at Indigo working on another new book startup. That would eventually become Kobo. And since its beginning, it was competing with Amazon's Kindle. So it was almost 10 years before Kobo launched. And I know it launched as... Short covers. Short, short covers. Was Kobo a concept that was always there, it, it sort of uh, stating in the background, or did was there a eureka moment at some point? There was a series of strategic conversations that happened inside Indigo in, I believe it was uh, 2008, where Kindle had just been launched in the US, Sony had their first e-readers out, and there was this pressing strategic issue of, what happens to us as a physical retailer if consumers decide that they want to read books digitally? And what do we do about that? And they had what I would describe as a pretty courageous response, which was, 
either someone's going to come along and disrupt us or we can do it to ourselves. And Koba was started as a skunk works project literally in the basement of uh, of Indigo and Short Covers was that first project yeah. that came out. And it was you know, one of the first reading apps on iPhone coming out of a you know, Canadian company in Toronto. And Kobo really was created initially, incubated inside Indigo, with the mandate to go out and take print customers and turn them into digital customers. We had some people who just jumped into it right away. And some of it's that that early adopter wave of people who will try any new technology. But 2010, 2011 were also kind of the years where everybody bought an e-reader for their mom. Um, and it was this sense of, here's a thing, I've got somebody who loves books, who has books in their lives. I can give them this. Here's a, here's a thing that might make their reading life better. And a lot of people then were introduced to e-reading as, as a result of that. Some people stuck, some people didn't. But the momentum of ebooks and e-reading has been very different from your traditional technology adoption curve. You know, this isn't like digital music or digital video, which were driven by 18 to 25-year-olds. This is uh, a digital adoption that's being driven by 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds. You know, it's people who do read three books a week. And they're the ones who are saying, yeah, ebooks are the best thing ever. Fantastic. I can make the, the font size three times as big as it is in a regular book. Amazing. Um, it's allowed us to pull people who are 70 and 80 years old who had stopped reading because they couldn't find the books that they wanted in large print yeah. and now get access to the books that they love again. The international focus was an imperative right from the beginning, wasn't it? That I've, I've read that over and over again that it wasn't about... Canada, it was very much about the world. Yeah, I think a number of us had been in various startup companies before. So we knew that there's that traditional trajectory of you start in Canada, you immediately focus on the US, and then that becomes your your world. Yeah. And we had the sense that the change that was coming through ebooks was going to mean that you wouldn't have, you know, a big national ebook retailer for Canada and a big national ebook retailer for France uh, and Netherlands and Italy, the way that you do for physical books. Yeah. Uh, it was going to be a few multinational companies and they were going to do it everywhere. And you can predict who some of those, those candidates were yes. going to be. You're yes. going to have Amazon, you're going to have Apple, you're going to have Google. Um, but we thought that there was room for one who was really just focused on readers, books, and reading. And that was the premise that led us to say, we have to get into a lot of markets and we have to do it very quickly. Do you think the conversation would be different today, given that the competitor, the biggest competitor was Amazon? And I mean, I know they would have been scary then, but they seem super scary today. Well, it's it's funny because in a way, you know, if we were launching it now, I think it, you know, it would be harder. But uh, the cement was still really wet around ebooks when we yes. were starting. Yes. So there was certainly that sense that you either do it now or those competitive windows close and it's really hard to get in later. So speed was certainly important. Finding good partners early was important. Uh, if you were trying to do it now, it would be, you know, I think it would be next to impossible. In 2011, Japanese e-commerce giant Rakuten bought Kobo from Indigo for $315 million dollars. 
Kobo was just a couple of years old at the time. We could see that this was going to be a globe-spanning competitive fight. Uh, we needed access to a lot of resources. We needed access to an investor who was both thinking globally and was um, was patient in terms of helping us get out there and build this kind of global ecosystem. And that was very much what Rakuten wanted to do. And it's you know it's hard when you're running a national retailer like Indigo is, or even like any of the other retailers that that we've been working with. Um, you know, their main debt is to sell books and return a profit to their investors. It's not to make decade-long bets in, you know, in digital media. Um, and so the the acquisition with Rakuten was great for everyone. The way that Kobo would move into a new market was you know, pretty much the same every time. We would be looking across different territories and trying to see which ones looked like they were going to make that jump into into ebooks and digital reading. And so then you're looking at everything from uh, disposable income to literacy levels, but in many cases, most importantly, are publishers ready to start providing ebooks for sale? And so as soon as that happened, I or a member of my team would end up on a plane going to France or Netherlands or Italy or Australia or wherever it was and uh, start to build those supply relationships so we would have something to sell. In those, those, in those markets. In those markets. Yeah. And because everyone wants to see their books from their own authors and they want to see it from their local publishers who are selling the things that are relevant to them. In parallel to that then – business development people are going in, we're making relationships with retailers in terms of who's going to sell uh, e-readers and devices for us, or into telcos to see who's going to be embedding our app on devices. And so all of that would tend to follow in right after, but job number one would be, do we have something that we can sell there from an ebook perspective? Was there a uh, a template that could be replicated, like when you're in Italy or in Holland? W- was everyone kind of at the same place at the same time? Not at all. Okay. Every country was at a different point on this adoption curve. You had countries like the U.S. who were progressing very rapidly. You had countries that had a lot of internal resistance to moving away from paper. The um, Some of the European markets... Uh, put a lot of emphasis on kind of the cultural heritage of books and publishing. Yeah. And so, A, the idea of someone coming in and changing that in some way was was either threatening or uncomfortable. B, the idea that that might be a non-local company, that that would be a multinational organization, would ratchet up the level of tension again. And then add on to that kind of all of the the local tradition around how books and authors are presented and promoted is very different from market to market. How we sell books in Canada or the U.S. versus how we sell them in Japan are almost completely different because book buying culture, book selling culture, book publishing culture is so completely different. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's Sometimes it's little things. If you are promoting a book in the Netherlands, you always include a picture of the author with it. Okay. Uh, in Canada, there are maybe six authors that people know the faces of. <laughs> you know, um, and you know, if you were if you had to pick, you know, James Patterson out of a lineup, most people wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, but 
a reader in the Netherlands knows all of the faces of their favorite authors and expects to see them when you run an ad for a book, when you put out an email marketing campaign for them. In Japan, 60% of what we sell are uh, manga, are digital comics. And that's unlike any other territory that we're in. Uh, you know, maybe three, four percent of what we sell in um, in a North American market would be would be considered graphic novels or comic books. And you have to sell those differently. Like you have to promote them differently. They get read differently. They're read incredibly fast. So the the frequency of purchase that happens in a market like that and the frequency of promotion then has to change a lot because someone's going to buy it, read it, and be on to the next one in two days. Yeah. As opposed to the three weeks that it might take someone to read a novel here in Canada. The process of having the conversations with publishers around why are ebooks a good thing, why are they something that they should bother spending time with, has been a really interesting one. And depending on where the objections are or where the concerns are, we talk about it in a few different ways. But probably the most compelling one for people is we're just trying to help people do the reading that they want to do in the format and device that they want to do it on. The story is the same. The goal of getting an author's works, an author's ideas in front of someone is the same. Um, but what if somebody does want to do their reading on a smartphone? What if somebody does want to do their reading on a tablet? Do we want to lose those people to all of the other things you can do on a smartphone or a tablet? Or do we want ebooks and e-reading to be something that they can spend their time on? And that's proven to be a very durable and compelling argument because every publisher is aware of that competitive landscape of fighting for time. Well, also, presumably, the the most successful influential authors would also be a, a push. They want their they want their work out there being read. Usually, although although some of them are very traditional in terms of saying, no, I believe that books are about paper, and I you know I never want my books to appear in you know in digital form. They almost always. Are Come around in time. Are there are a few. You still, I, I think you still can't get Catcher in the Rye in digital um, because the estate of J.D. Sollinger hasn't let it come out. Um, but uh, but those are now few and far between. It used to be there were more back in 2009, 2010. Um, and now oh, not just practically everything comes out in digital. Everything comes out in digital simultaneously with print. And now we're seeing everything comes out simultaneously in print and digital and audio at the same time, which is really publishers coming around to this idea of, hey, we've got different formats. People enjoy them in different ways for different reasons, but we want to have them all available all the time if we can. You're listening to Open Concept. Today, we're talking to Kobo President and CEO Michael Tamblin. After the break competition in the ebook marketplace, and Michael's thoughts on the future of reading and paper publishing. So if somebody said to you, who is your competition? 
uh, or perhaps a better way is saying, who are your competitors? But how do you respond to that? I say in 2009, we picked a fight with the largest e-commerce company in the world, the most profitable hardware maker in history, the uh, most successful search engine in the history of humankind, and a few of the, the world's biggest bookstores. And now, what are we, eight, nine years later, um, we're still there. And, and I think what we're seeing is that in each media category, you have the ecosystem players, Amazon, Apple, Google, and then you get one company that's focused on that media type particularly. You have Spotify for music, you have Netflix for video, and with ebooks and audiobooks, that's ended up being us. But Kindle is still quite a ways out in front, right? It depends on the market that okay. you're in. I would say we're probably neck and neck here in Canada. You know, the U.S. is the territory that they're um, that they're certainly dominant in, and the important decision that we made early on was we could see even back in 2009, 2010, that the U.S. was going to be the battleground. That's where everybody was going to go at it. Amazon and Apple and Google and Barnes and Noble. So while they were all going at it in the U.S., um, we, you know, kind of quietly turned and went, what's every other market where ebooks might be a thing? And that led us into Europe and into Asia and into Australia and New Zealand and let us build some of these, you know, this early market share. So uh, once you get out of the U.S. and the U.K., you know, we really are a peer competitor with, with Amazon in most of the markets that we, we compete with them in. And in some places we're bigger. The issue of, of market share is a, is a vexing one because the numbers all seem to vary. When you, when you look at, like, are ebooks growing? Are they declining? Oh, it's a terrible business for access to good market data. It is. It's, it's, because what I've seen of late is that the ebook market share has declined year over year. And I know that it's very susceptible to price point, but can you can you talk a little bit about the overall trends that you're seeing? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely worth unpacking some yeah. of those numbers because mostly what you're getting are uh, publisher self-reported ebook revenues or publisher self-reported ebook units. And you usually only get them for the US. So what you're actually hearing in those numbers is publisher stated revenues from big traditional publishers are flat or down 3% or whatever they are. Uh, that doesn't in any way represent what's actually selling in the ebook market. For example, um, one in four of the books we sell in Canada comes through our self-publishing division. And so uh, never touched a publisher, came directly from the author to us. Um, one in four is gigantic. <laughs> it's yes, you know, it's yes. like having another publisher as large as the largest publisher in Canada also selling, but it doesn't show up in any of the metrics that anyone's watching. And because we don't report those sales into these studies, and Amazon doesn't report either, and because there's really only the two of us, um, neither of us really want to have our, our data in the mix around that, it's, um, it's then this massively underreported um, piece of ebook sales that's going on all the time. And that piece is growing every year. So that more than makes up for you know, the, the, um, the minor declines that you see in traditional publishing. And I think should be more of a warning sign for 
traditional publishers because you know, really we're all in a fight for time. You know, we're yes, you know, as yes. much as we are. You know, I'm I'm fighting Amazon, and you know, Amazon's fighting Apple. Um, we're all fighting for time for reading as opposed to all of the other things that you could be doing time with or you could be spending your time on. So self-publishing is taking some of that time from traditional publishers to the point of like one in four books. So the market is changing and it's changing in a way that traditional publishers can't see because it doesn't show up in any of that reporting that they're looking at. The next thing I wanted to ask you about is a source of tremendous concern for me. I, I'm, I'm a voracious, dedicated reader, uh, but my children uh, are certainly not. I, and it, 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 it never stops to shock me how much they are not. They are not readers. And, and in mm -hmm. fact, the printed word is almost an affront to them. I, I don't know how unique they are, but <clears throat> what do we do? What I would say is that most people who love reading find their way in, their own way to it. Okay. And they find it at different times in their lives. So the the best thing that parents can ever do is to read to their kids. And the next best thing they can do is keep books around in the home. We, those things are fundamental and important. But what we generally see is that reading kind of goes through these spikes. And if you look at the demographics, it's almost like kind of a two-humped camel. You get... Um, people going into their mid-teen years and late-teen years where books start to become more of a thing. The books that they're reading at school start to become more interesting and more relevant to what they're doing. And then you get into university and kind of recreational reading just flatlines because you got a lot of work to do. <laughs> and, then, and then continues as you leave university, you start a family, you start a career, you do all of that stuff. Um, but then it starts to come back in your to the sort of 30s, 40s, 50s. And, um, and you get this next spike of reading that happens on the, on the other end of the, of the demographic curve. We were worried that it was like one group of readers moving through you know, time. Um, but no, it's a pretty steadily renewing stream of people who kind of hit about 40 and then go, actually, I would really like to do something that doesn't involve bombarding me with information. And books become a refuge. I'm encouraged by that. But I, I mean, I know when I was a kid, when I was bored, my mom would always say, read a book. But, you know, I grew up in rural New Brunswick. There was not that many plan Bs, right? Whereas, you know... the four channels of television. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there was no there was no iPad, no iPhones, no laptops. And now, from a purely informational perspective, all that information's there and all the entertainment is there. There is a number of alternatives to reading. Is that demographic? Is that retrievable? I believe so. And partly because, first of all, online experiences are still hugely about reading. People are consuming an immense amount of text. People are, you know, they're not hammering Encyclopedia Britannica anymore, but they are moving through Wikipedia at just the same rate. And, you know, in some cases to articles that were actually written better than were ever written inside Encyclopedia Britannica. They're, you know, they're on Wattpad. They're on fan fiction. They're, yes. you know, they're, they're certainly coming to us for, for big books that feel relevant and timely or that just catch the imagination. You know, how much Fault in Our Stars have we sold? You know, how much... Harry Potter, how much insurgent, like the, we have these big books that just tear through um, the, you know, nine to 17 year old uh, market and everybody's reading them. And that hasn't gone down that much. Like those, 
those big books still um, excite people the same way that they did before. We're you know we're due for another one, but they come around, and um, and then you see everybody with a book in their hand again because that's the that's the cultural experience that everybody wants to be current on, and then it goes on to something else. I'm c- really curious about the durability now of of paperback uh, or hardcovers, uh, the traditional book. There was a time when when I was a big e-reader, and I thought. I would never go back to paper. You want the next book in the series, or you want the obscure back title that you're never going to find locally, Uh, and that's living in downtown Toronto. And you you could just get it on your device at a much cheaper price point, and you can get it immediately, right? There's so many benefits, and yet the traditional book still exists. And I don't think we ever really thought it would go away. It what we did see is that there are certain genres that went very heavily digital. If you are a science fiction fan, a romance fan, a thriller fan, if you're into mysteries, like those went heavily digital and mostly have stayed there. At the same time, it made publishers double down on, okay, how do we make beautiful artifacts? Like how do we make books that are actually worth uh, people going into a store to see. So, oh, you know, from the time that ebooks really got rolling, kind of 2010, 2011, you start to see books get more beautiful. You start to see design matter more and paper quality matter more and bindings become more interesting and like bookstores just look more interesting now than they did in, you know, when ebooks were getting started. And that was a combination of publishers going, okay, we have to up our game and make a physical product that's worthy of people coming to see it. And bookstores going, okay, we have to provide an experience that makes people still want to come into stores. And it meant that like, going into a store got better. So it, um, it got better for everyone as a result, I think, um, and, you know, the backlash kind of swings back and forth a bit, and that that either helps or hinders one side or the other. Um, but we've reached a nice equilibrium now. Do you have sort of an, a, presumably do, an idealized or desired vision five years down the line? Presumably you still want that. You still want that bookstore as a book lover, just from a purely tactile experience of there's nothing better than walking into a, a good bookstore. And at the same time, in terms of, encouraging the next generation of readers, you say, having books in the house. Um, you still want that paper. Yeah, I think that this is not an either-or discussion. I think there are uh, there are a lot of books that are just beautiful as physical, physical objects. You want them in your house, not just because they're nice to look at, but they also, you know, they say something about you. They're interesting as as artifacts. And so I don't think that's going away. Uh, at the same time, I see more and more personal reading happening in digital, happening on e-readers, happening on phones. It, w- what I would say is there's going to be a lot of buying books for your children, um, buying books that are about browsing or photography or visual or whatever that remain in paper. Um, a lot of book selling even now is the gift economy. You know, if you look at that massive spike of sales that happens every December, that's not people buying for themselves. That's people buying for other people because books are a really nice thing to give someone. But ebook reading is almost entirely personal. It's mostly what do you read for fun? What are you reading for your own education or uh, or information or enjoyment? And 
those two can live next to each other. Like, that's totally okay. There's also a, an interesting element of privacy in, in e-reading where you don't really have to advertise what you're reading all the time. You get yeah. to decide if you want to or not. And it turns out that people have kind of a personal reading life and a public reading life, and they're not necessarily the same things. And well, how do you know that part? Um, mostly just in that that's what customers tell us. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, I... You know, I used to be really embarrassed because I was a, you know, I was a romance fan and people would judge me if I was you know, reading that book on the subway. And now I don't have to, which means I can read more and, you know, really the heck with them anyway. Like the, and I think it sort of unlocked for people a way of going, no, I'm going to read what I want. Do you still read anything in hard copy? It's funny. I was, uh, I had my uh, e-reader stolen by my wife over, uh, over the holiday season. And so for, I was either, I was reading on my phone uh, which I do a lot anyway, so that's fine. But when I was out in the sun, as you often do on vacation, um, you know, the phone just isn't as good. So I found myself uh, falling back to to paper for that. And uh, the, one of the things that I do still read in uh, in paper is poetry. We started off on a more sort of personal note of reading and music. Do you? What are you reading now? Oh, it's been a good summer for reading. I uh, mostly read and then finished an audio this book called uh, The Daughters of the Winter Queen, which was uh, a history of Elizabeth Stewart and her daughters who all then became queens and royalty through, uh, through Europe in the 1600s, 1700s, led to the Thirty Years' War, read... Um, the biography of uh, Walsingham, who was the spymaster of Queen Elizabeth I, called The Queen's Agent. That was amazing. Um, read a book by Anne Prue, who uh, wrote The Shipping News, called Bark Lines. That was about early exploration in uh, fictional uh, in Quebec. And so I've kind of been roaming around all over the place. There's been a lot more history this summer than usual. And how about the music? Are you are you still composing? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, I could hold it together when I was when I was starting to run my first company, um, but then as soon as it was company plus first child, yeah. that was when uh, that's when I couldn't hold it together anymore. And I, I I hear generally that you can you can kind of keep music going with one of the two, but usually not with both of the two. So right now I'm living vicariously through my youngest son, who's uh, started to write some music himself and is uh, is a pretty good piano player. Um, and uh, otherwise, I may just have to wait until things slow down a bit. Michael, thank you so much for coming in today. It was great to speak with you. Thank you for having me. That was Michael Tamplin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. Thanks for joining me on Open Concept. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Yahoo Finance CA. I'm Noel Holzman. This episode was produced by Laura Howells. We'll see you next week. <laughs>